0: We'll turn our attention to God's Word again. Uh, We'll be reading this morning from Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Uh, I believe your bulletin says says Ezekiel chapter 36. We will read uh, from there and then continue on reading in chapter 37. Ezekiel 36, we'll begin in verse 22 and read through verse 32. Then we'll continue on in chapter 37, reading the entire chapter. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. But for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, and gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle a clean water on you, and you shall be clean." I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you shall remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel." Then we'll jump down to uh, chapter 37, just a few more verses down. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinew and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet. An exceeding great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up, come up from your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves." I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and ride on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his companions, and I will join them with it, make with the stick of Judah, and with them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And will cleanse them, then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be be their prince forever." Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, whenever my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, as we gather this morning, we confess there are many distractions on our mind, many things that drag us away from your pure and powerful word. I pray that you would set these things aside, that you would turn our attention to what you have to say to us, and that you would work by your Spirit to apply these things to our lives, that we might be strengthened and encouraged and convicted and corrected as each one of us has need. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I remember when I was growing up that I liked to play pretend sometimes. Quite often, in fact. And sometimes I observe my children playing pretend, and sometimes they'll play pretend firefighter, right? Play pretend firefighter, go rushing on their fire engines to go fight the fire, to go save the building, to go do the work of a firefighter, playing pretend. You know, sometimes um, in the church there's this danger that we can play pretend. And what I mean by that is you think about a child. Think about when you young people play pretend, right? Are you equipped to be a real firefighter, to go and save a building? Well, I sure hope you're not planning to go into a burning building without a mask on and without a fire hose and without the training and help you need to be successful. But the truth is that sometimes we can think about how we participate in God growing his church in ways that are very much like a child playing pretend. We are going forward seeking and wanting to do the work God has given to grow his church, and yet we are doing it without the equipment he gives, and in fact doing it in our strength and in our methodology instead of doing it in the, his strength and in the ways he has set forth before us. And so as we open up the book of Ezekiel, the reason we are looking at, that particular combination of texts, is because in this text, God lays out His plan for building His church. And He lays out for it the purpose behind it. He lays out, and then He lays out how He's going to do it in the work of His Spirit in making it alive and in uniting. And this text is particularly relevant to us because it comes and it addresses God's people not in their time of strength, but indeed in their time of great weakness, in their time of absolute despair. As Ezekiel addresses God's people, he is addressing them as they are in exile. They are exiled in Babylon, and the history behind them is indeed of them attempting to build God's kingdom in their own strength. You might think of kings, people like King Saul or King Ahab, who sought to build God's people by the strength of arms and by powerful centralized rule or you might think of the downfall of king hezekiah who sought to make alliance with babylon to build god's kingdom or you might think of what brought king solomon down the sin of syncretism of gathering in other gods in the worship seeking other ways to build and strengthen god's people and yet introducing to it rottenness to the core all of this history led to israel's ju- led to israel being judged and exiled by God. And so as Ezekiel is prophesying to these people who are in Babylon, having seen the temple destroyed, the questions they face, the questions Ezekiel answer, is first, is God going to do anything with them? Is there any hope for them? Is God going to build them into his people? Is he going to advance his kingdom through them? And second, how is God going to do it? Where is that hope going to be found? And as we look at this text, we see that indeed there is, because when God, that God, because God is going to heal his people by his Spirit for the sake of his holy name, and he's going to do it by reviving his dead people and by uniting his dead people. And so first we're going to look at what God is going to do and why he's going to do it. And we'll see that in chapter 36. And there, I really want to focus on the why. Why is God going to do what he's going to do? But as we first see, first we have to get our minds around, what is Israel's condition? And I just touched on it. The truth is, they are in exile. And the truth is that God sees them. He says, you are unclean. That is the weight of the preceding verses. In verses 16 through 21, God says, you became an idolatrous and unclean people. And so I had no choice but to judge and exile and destroy you, to cast you out of the land, to cast you from my presence, to scatter you among the nations. The condition of God's people at this moment is utterly dire. And what is worse is the problem is not external to them, but they are the problem. It is their sin and their uncleanness that has led to this condition. And so, when God comes and gives his plan, this is a word of great, great hope. What is his plan? He picks it up there, um, starting in verse um, 24. And he has this whole list of things that God plans to do. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you out of the countries and bring you into your own land. God says, I am going to reverse your exile. Instead of being scattered you will be gathered. Then he says in 25, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. God says, I'm going to take away all that uncleanness, all that idolatry, all those things that led to your judgment. I'm going to wash them away and expunge them from you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. So what was part of the problem of Israel? It wasn't just that they were sinful, but that they were stubborn in their sinfulness. That God would come to them over and over and over again with prophets with his word, with judgments, with every opportunity to repent and turn away from destruction. And what did the people do? They plowed headfirst into destruction. They stuck on that path of idolatry, rejecting what God had to say to them. So God says, I will soften your heart. Then 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will solve the problem of disobedience in you, God says, by putting my spirit in you. I'm going to change you so you obey. So that you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. They will be restored to fellowship with their God. And then as we see in verses 29 and 30, they will experience fruitfulness. They will experience blessing and prosperity as they live together in God's land, as God's people enjoying his blessing. What Ezekiel prophesies here is an incomplete reversal of God's judgment so that these people return to their God and live as his people with their God. But what does this hope rest upon? Ezekiel says it twice in these verses. He says it first there in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. He repeats it in verse 32. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Here's the truth. God isn't looking on Israel and saying, I see great potential in you. I see how you're going to become a great people and a great nation and we just need to develop you a little bit. He doesn't look at them and say, you deserve a second chance. He looks at them and says, your behavior has shown that you don't deserve anything but destruction. But what does God choose to do? He says, I will glorify my name. I will gain the holiness, the honor that my name deserves, not by giving you the rightful destruction that you have earned but by making you holy. So that first, when I restore you, you will know that I am holy. And second, as the nations see my sanctuary in your midst, they will know that I am holy. And so what God is showing is his his plan of winning glory for himself. He's showing why he is building up his kingdom in the nations. And it's something important for us to remember. What what Ezekiel is prophesying here is something that has come to pass. This is when Peter stands up and preaches in Acts 2. Um, He says that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit has come. This is what God has promised. The going out of his spirit and the gathering of his people. What we are experiencing now within the church is what God promised here, but it is important that we return to what his purpose is. His purpose is not that he saw in us great potential. His purpose is not that in us he saw a few places to tweak. Rather, his purpose for us is that he saw us as those who rejected him, who earned his condemnation, who deserve his destruction. Instead of doing that, he saved us. And so he tells us how that should transform our attitudes. I think it's very easy when we're surrounded by a culture that has utterly rejected God. When we're in a world that is at war with him to gain the sense of superiority. We are better. We are better than those who are not gathered here today. We're better than those congregations down the street. We are better. And yet, what is God's prescription to his people as they experience his salvation? His prescriptionism is to remember what you did and to be brought low. To be brought low and humbled before him. And the gospel, the message of the gospel, the message of God God has done for you in Christ Jesus should bring you low and see that God is using you as an instrument to show forth his holiness. And yet that should also motivate us because we recognize that God hasn't just saved us for no purpose whatsoever, but he has saved us so that we might be a display of his holiness. So on the one hand, it should bring us very low into a state of repentance and of praise to him for what he has done for us. On the other hand, it should make us strive to live lives that honor him because he has saved us to the purpose that he might be honored. So that is the hope that Ezekiel puts before God's people. But now he's going to show them how it's actually going to happen. How are they going to go from a scattered, divided people who are stained and unclean and unfit to come before God? How are they going to become God's people and actually show that off? You you think about that image of a firefighter. You know, If if you're in trouble and you need the firefighters to come and uh, get you out of a wrecked car, it's very helpful to know that they have the tools and the methodology. They know what they're doing and they're actually able to help. That gives you hope. If you saw me coming up to the car saying, I'm a firefighter, I'm going to help you in my suit and tie, um, that wouldn't bring a lot of hope, especially if you knew that I have zero training as a firefighter. I have no idea what I'm doing. In the same way, part of what Ezekiel is going to do here is he's now going to show clearly and very particularly how God is going to work this salvation, first, to increase the people's hope, so that they can see and know and understand that God knows what He is doing and how he's going to do it. And I think second, because they are expected to participate in it. They're going to be players in this. They're going to experience it. We'll see how that works out. So he shows us in two images. First, in the image of these dry bones, and second, this image of these two sticks. Let's give our attention to these dry bones. Chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Usually when I hear this text, I always thought of valleys, because I've been living in San Antonio for a long time, like they have in San Antonio, which are steep and craggy and narrow. (laughs) And so I was like, well, okay, so we got this val- like this ravine that's just stacked full of bones. That's not actually what, what Ezekiel's describing. What he's describing here is, uh, as we were driving over um, from San Antonio, we crossed the Trinity River. And the Trinity River is this wide plain on both sides. What Ezekiel is seeing is he's standing in a river plain. And he is seeing bones just scattered all over this plain. What he is seeing is the leftovers of a great battle. And he's seeing the bones... Of those people who fought and died on that plane. He is seeing the results of Israel's wars against Babylon in a very real sense. He is, God is showing him, this is where you're at. You, you people are totally defeated. What you see is a valley full of bones. And then God actually brings his attention to it. God says, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel, look out and look at this valley. Here are all these bones that have been... These, these were dead bodies six months ago, and now they're picked clean bones, totally dried out. Is there any life in them? And Ezekiel's answer is an answer both of honesty and of faith. It says, O oh Lord God, you know. Which is on one hand confessing, well, Lord, there's no way that I can make them live, and I have no expectation, that they could love, and yet, Lord, you have the power to do what you want. And what this is, as as God says to Ezekiel in verse 11, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. God says, here's the assessment of where you're at, O Israel. You're dead. You're all dead. You're utterly defeated by the... literally by Babylon, and and figuratively, spiritually, you're utterly dead. There is no hope in you. There is no power in you. There is no expectation that you will do anything but sit here until the ground covers you over. You are dead and cast out. And that's good for us to hear. First, because it reminds us about what we are without the work of God's Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are nothing other than dead, dry bones after a battle that has stayed there and wasted away. That is what we are. But I think it's also helpful to see in what situations God is pleased to work. You know, all we've heard about Israel from Ezekiel and from the Lord is that Israel is beyond hope, as it were. They are utterly sinful. They are utterly dead. They are utterly defeated. And the truth is, when we stand as God's church, as God's people, and we look out at the world around us, the condition is equally hopeless. Our nation serves false gods. Our neighbors are utterly lost in their sins. We have people who are destroying themselves in the worship of false gods and a false pleasure. Day after day after day. But the truth is that these are the situations in which God is most pleased to work because it is in the salvation of just such people that he is glorified. His purpose is to bring glory to his name. And he does it not because those people deserve to be saved because it brings glory to his name to save people who don't deserve to be saved. But how does God choose to do it? There in 37, verse 3, or in verse 4. Again, he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews in you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. What is Ezekiel's job? What is he to do to these dry bones? God says, you are to prophesy. You are to speak my word to these bones. And I think it's important here to pause a second to think about what we mean by prophecy in our day and age, I think we hear the word prophecy and we think that someone's going to get up and tell the future to us. You know, Someone's going to prophesy and tell me what's going to happen 10 years from me to me or something. That's not really what Scripture means when he uses the word prophecy. When he uses the word prophecy, what we're talking about is the authoritative announcement of God's word through God's authorized servant. So when he tells Ezekiel to prophesy, he's telling Ezekiel, you tell these bones my word. Tell them what I intend to do. Tell them what I am actively right now doing. Sometimes he tells us equal to go tell them about their history. That's what he was just doing. Here's what did happen. That's prophecy as well. Which is why our spiritual forefathers have always understood that preaching is a form of prophecy. It's a form of God's ordained servant speaking God's words to you and applying them to you. It is how God's Spirit is pleased to work. And he makes that connection there in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, that is Israel, O my people, I open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And so the first way that God is going to save his people is through the proclamation of his word of hope to the people. It's the first way he's going to bring them life. But there's a second way. Ezekiel prophesies to the bones. The bones come together and they they get the tendons and the sinews and the muscles and the skin is all put upon them. And yet, they're now just dead bodies lying there. They've come a long way, but they are not living bodies. They are not people ready to serve the Lord. They are dead. There is no breath in them. So God comes and he says, Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Here it's really important to pause a second. The word breath in Hebrew can mean breath, it can mean wind, and it can mean spirit. It's the same word and has every all of those meanings all in it. So prophesy to the breath. Sometimes it's prophesy to the wind or prophesy to the spirit. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. What God is telling Ezekiel is your first role is to preach my word to the people, but your second word is to prophesy to my spirit. You are to pray to me what I said in my word that it might be done. You are to come and plead with me from my word. You are to prophesy to the spirit that he might come and bring these people to life. He is telling Ezekiel you have two roles. You are to preach and you are to pray. And what is the result of that? So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath, or spirit, came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. The way God tells his people that he is going to build his church, how is he going to build his kingdom? Is it going to be through magnificent strategies? Is it going to be through charismatic leaders? Is it going to be through... through through business plans or advertising or having great buildings. The way God says right here, how does my Holy Spirit work? Through the preaching of the Word and through the earnest prayer from the Word. Resting on what God has already promised. And so there he concludes in 14, I will put my Spirit in you, and you shall live, and I'll place you in your own land, Then you shall know it that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. How is God going to save his people? By the work of his spirit in the word preached and in the word prayed. I think it's so important that we rest and think upon that. You know, I find it so easy to get distracted. In my own, in my own work of ministry, you get distracted from these two essential things. It's the things the apostles struggle with. We read in Acts 6, right? They are trying to feed, feed all the widows. And the apostles say, this is too much work for us. This is where we get the deacons from. Because what do we need to be focused upon? They say, we need deacons so we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the first application is, you know, to, to those of you, to those of us who are elders, we ought to not get taken away and distracted so that we lose prayer and the word. And second, to those of you who are not, you need to hold us accountable to that. If we aren't praying for you, praying for your church, praying in the word, if we are not bringing the word before you proclaim it, we are failing in what God called us to do, and you need to hold us accountable to that work. Because it is only that, it is only through that, that is the means by which God is speaking life to you, which God is making you like. You need it. And so if you're not getting it, you need to hold us accountable to it. That needs to be our focus. But then look, I love it, look, look, look at what the result is. A mighty great army. We don't feel like a mighty great army most of the time. And so, and and certainly God's people in Babylon did not see themselves as a mighty great army. And yet, we have to put on, as it were, the glasses of faith and see what God sees and see where God is going and see that though this may be a small place, and it seems like God is doing small things here, that each one of our little congregations are little companies in God's army, that we are each part of the pieces of what he is doing moving forward conquering the world advancing christ's rule over our nation we are part of that and it's so easy to lose sight of that in despair in 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 the crazy things that happen in this world and yet it is true god has formed us living beings to serve him as an army There's one more thing that Ezekiel brings out that's going to happen when the Spirit comes and works in God's people. And it's the second picture. He says, Ezekiel, you're going to take two sticks. So <laughs> take one stick and write on to Judah. Take their stick right on to Israel. You have these two sticks in your hand. And what are you to do with them? You're going to take these two sticks and you're going to join them together so that they are one stick. What's going on with this? Well, Ezekiel's referencing probably the greatest the the thing that most greatly damaged Israel's witness to the nations, which is the fact that for most of her history, Israel was not one, but many. Israel was divided against herself. Um, Recently in Ezekiel's day, that meant that there was the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, actually two separate nations warring each other. That division goes way back. You might think of how God's people were divided in the house of Jacob, where... The, the the ten sons of Jacob were so enraged against the one son, Joseph, that they tried to kill him and sold him into slavery. Or you might think of in, in Moses' day when they're traveling through the wilderness and the sons of Korah come up and say, Why does Moses get to be special? Why does Aaron get special? We want to we wanna rule too and there is war within the camp. Or you might think of the days of the judges when again we read about tribe, warring against tribe. So, the truth of Israel's history is not one of unity, but of division. So, the, bata- the time you reach Solomon, you're almost unsurprised to find out that two tribes stayed with, well, with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Two tribes end up staying with Rehoboam, and ten tribes go away the other way. Because they've been divided like that through most of their history. That is normal for them. And you know, the truth is that characterizes the church, God's people, even to this day. If you study church history, I feel like 90% of what we study is, is the divisions. You start in ancient history and you study the division between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Then you fast forward a little bit and you study the division between the Protestant and the Catholic. And then you study the division between the different Protestant churches. Division characterizes God's people in so many ways. And... Ezekiel recognizes this, and that was really part and parcel of the downfall of God's people, was the fact that they were divided. They could not stand against Babylon because they were two nations, not one. They could not witness to God effectively because half the nation was constantly in rebellion against God. They had lost their way. And so what is God's work going to be? Verse 19 I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And how is he going to do it? Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. When God comes and makes his people alive by the work of his Spirit, one thing that's gonna characterize them is unity. It really is unity is going to characterize them. But it is not unity in the way the world tells us we should have unity. You know how the world tells us we should have unity? The world tells us we should have unity by just accepting whatever. The world tells us we should have unity by straying far from God, by going all our separate ways and being okay with it. And that's what Israel tried for centuries. They all did whatever they felt like. That was, that's, you know, the judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you got disunity. You got strife and discord. Rather, we will find unity because David, my servant, Christ Jesus, is our king. And that will bring us together. Then we are mutually submitted to Christ Jesus, our king. And there's two important applications there. First, is that we ought to find natural unity, natural concord with all those who call Christ Jesus King. That can bring us together. Though we may not be able to house ourselves in the same denomination, though we may not be close to each other in other ways, the fact that they call Christ Jesus King means we're brothers and we have to work it out. That's a hard thing to say because it's very complicated. It's very difficult to make work, but it's true. But second that the way to unity is never through compromise. It's never to say it doesn't matter. Rather, it's to say Christ is king and I will be submitted to him and I will call you to be submitted to him too because then we will find unity. But then, as we reach these last two verses, I'm going to bring all this back together because we've gone a lot of different ways and it seems a little crazy. God says, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And this is why I wanted to cover so much ground ground this morning. Because we started in verse 22 of chapter 36. I'm going to do this for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. We started with God's people bringing shame and dishonor to God's name. Not only were they not advancing his kingdom, but they were bringing dishonor to it and, and destroying it from the inside. That is what God's people had become. And God says, I'm going to do something about it. And so then we come and, and God gives this vision of these bones coming to life and forming a great army. And so then he says to some of that event in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. So he says first, the first step in God's building his kingdom is, is to restore and give life to his church. To bring them together and make them spiritually alive. To give them life, even as Christ Jesus has done for us. But then he concludes the chapter 37, that the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst together. So how is God advancing his kingdom through his church? First, he's making us alive. He is converting us individually, and He's building us and giving us life day by day through the preaching of His Word and through prayer. And then, second, through the rule of Christ Jesus as King, He's bringing us together. He's uniting us. And it doesn't feel that way very often, frequently, because we are constantly fighting. Yet He is uniting us. And that becomes a powerful witness to the nations, to those people out there who are looking on and going, Why are we doing what we're doing? And they say, and they see the life that God has given us and the unity that he has given us, that we are all very different, that we come from very different backgrounds, that we have different kinds of strife and things we could fight about, yet in submission to Christ Jesus we are brought together, and that becomes a powerful witness to the nations to see that God has made his home somewhere, and that place is right here in our midst. And, and so what's the application to us? First, we need to be hopeful. We need to be very hopeful. And it's so easy to get cynical. It's so easy to get cynical in this world, partially because our culture is very cynical and we inherit it from them. And second, because there's a lot of things to be cynical about. You know, Particularly as we're in an election year and and the strife is ramped up to 11 and the fears are ramped up to 12, it's very easy to go, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen to us? And yet the truth is, That God is, is forcefully God is going to get honor for His name. He is going to get glorified in this world for His holiness as He works in this church. He's going to do it, not because we deserve it, because He deserves it. Second, we need to be, have a iron, we, we have to have a tight focus on the things that God says He gives life through. Particularly here in Ezekiel, the things God's Spirit is pleased to work through. The Word and prayer. And I know that I'm too weak in both, and I suspect many of us are too weak in both. You know, That's what James criticizes the New Testament church for. First, you're coming before the Word, and you're forgetting what was said to you, so you're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. Too often the Word is hitting us and bouncing off. And then second, he tells them, you don't have because you don't ask. So often, we don't have because we don't ask. And so this is a call for us to refocus on those things the Spirit is pleased to work in. And then finally, that last section, it reminds us of the need to pursue unity in Christ. That the reality is that as we bicker with each other, and if, if, if we are not loving each other well, we are detracting from the witness to the nations. We are detracting from our witness to those people outside who are dying because they don't have Christ. And so we need to pursue unity, not in everything goes, but the unity that is found because Christ Jesus is our king. Which means we love people who are hard to love because Christ Jesus is their king too. And we work it out, and we keep working it out, because we are to be united under him. And what is the end result? The end result is that God is, is sanctified by the nations because they see that he has made his home with Israel's people. He has made his home with you. And in doing those things, the promise of the Lord is that his kingdom will advance. And so it is in pursuing those things in hope that we get to serve him today. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you first for the encouragement that you don't come to us expecting us to be able to do the work expecting us to be strong enough or good enough or to deserve your intervention. But you come to us seeing us what we are. We are dead. We are without hope. We don't deserve your love or your care or your concern. And yet you choose to make us make, make you choose to make us those who you will make yourself known to be holy by. And we thank and praise you for that. I pray that you would make each one of us responsive to your word, deep in your word, and submitted to it. That you would grow in us hearts that are quick to prayer. And that you would make us people who are united under King Jesus. So that your name might be made known to be glorious right here in Lufkin and in East Texas that people might see us and say, we want to come live with God because we've seen what God's people are like. I pray that this would be true for each one of us today. I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, go forward throughout our week. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now receive God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.